The first Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29, on page 67 in the Church Bibles. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord, even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. By your spirit, that you would help me to speak and that you would give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we continue our journey through Exodus. And it's 1300 BC, and I want you to meet Pharaoh, at least as Hollywood portrays him in the latest blockbuster Exodus. Pharaoh doesn't like being told what to do. Last week, Joe spoke about Pharaoh's reaction to Moses and Aaron telling him to free God's people who were in slavery in Egypt. And what did he do? He made God's people work even harder. He demanded that they meet their production targets for his infrastructure projects, the pyramids and whatever else he was building. But he stopped supplying them a key raw material, straw, for the bricks. And so their lives got even harder. They were even worse off. And so Moses, together with his brother Aaron, confront Pharaoh, as God has asked them to do, and they begin to demonstrate the power of God by performing a number of miraculous signs to Pharaoh and the Egyptian court. First, as instructed by God, Aaron throws his staff onto the ground and it becomes a snake. But not to be outdone, the Pharaoh's court officials throw their staffs down and they too become snakes. But what happens next is that the snake from Aaron's staff eats up the snakes from the Egyptian courtiers, proving God's superior power. So you might think that now Pharaoh would have got the message that he should do what God has told him to do. Let the Israelites go free. But he does nothing of the sort. And so God tells Moses and Aaron to warn Pharaoh that he will bring disaster 
on Egypt if he doesn't obey God. And what follows is a series of warnings which are not heeded by Pharaoh and are then played out in a series of events with devastating consequences on the people of Egypt. And these events are known as the plagues. Here they are, the ten plagues. The waters of the Nile, first of all, are turned to blood. Next, all the frogs come up out of the river and invade people's homes and Pharaoh's palace. And then a swarm of gnats followed by a swarm of flies invades the country. Then a disease kills all of the cattle and sheep in the land, cutting off one of the main sources of food. Next, disease strikes the people themselves as festering boils come out all over their bodies. Then massive hailstones rain down and flatten the plants. And if that wasn't enough, a plague of locusts invades and finishes off all the green plants, destroying their other source of food. As Pharaoh continues to resist, God sends three days of darkness over the land. That's the reading we heard this morning. And finally, after everything else fails to make Pharaoh let God's people go, the firstborn children of all the Egyptians will die in their sleep. It's an extraordinary and horrifying set of events. And it raises a lot of questions like, why didn't Pharaoh just let them go when he could have? How could a loving God inflict such horror on the Egyptian people? Why didn't God just strike Pharaoh dead and and let the Israelites go free? Why did they have to go through all of those plagues? What was the point? And those are great questions. They're important questions. And the good news is, the Bible gives us answers which shed light on the very character and purposes of God for the world. And at the centre of everything is God's identity. So what can the plagues tell us about God's identity? Well, the first thing it's important to realise is that Pharaoh was not an atheist. In fact, as Tim Chester says in his commentary on Exodus, Pharaoh was a thoroughly postmodern man. His issue was not, there is no God. His issue was, why should I listen to your God when I've got my own? You see, Egypt had plenty of gods of their own. Here's just a, a small selection of some of them. And although the plagues might seem like a random set of disasters sent to punish the Egyptians for the way they were treating God's people, they were in fact a sensational expose of Egypt's gods as counterfeit, as complete frauds. You see, the god Happy was the the Egyptian god of the river Nile, but in the first plague the Nile is turned to blood and all the fish die. Happy was unable to stop it. Heket was the frog-headed god of fertility, but couldn't prevent God from ordering all the frogs out of the river and up into the houses. Geb was the god of the earth, but the god of Israel turned the dust, the earth, into a plague of gnats which invaded the land, exposing Geb as a complete sham. Several gods were associated in some way with the cattle, but neither Hathor, Ammon, Bat, Apis, Bukis or Manuis could stop the death of the livestock, all of them are frauds. Isis, the goddess of medicine, couldn't stop the plague of boils. Nut was the goddess of the sky and should have been able to contain what fell to earth, but the hail came down nonetheless. Senehem was a minor god with a locust's head and was supposed to protect, pests, protect them from pests, 
but the locusts swarmed all over the country and destroyed the crops. And then we come to our reading today, the plague of darkness. The god Ra was the most powerful god of all, the sun god. And yet for three days the God of Israel shuts out the sun and demonstrates his power over the most worshipped object in Egyptian religion, the sun. Showing that even the strongest of Egyptian gods was really futile, weak and false. By now, Egyptian religion has been exposed as full of nothing but counterfeit gods with no substance with no power, just a figment of people's imagination. And what God is making clear through this whole process is that he is the one true God. But who or what do we think are the counterfeit gods of today? Well, let's for one minute just leave world religions to one side Isn't money a god in our world today? Isn't profit a god? What about power? What about celebrity? What about our children? Do we sometimes put them way up there as gods? What about TV? I go into some people's homes today and the sitting room looks like a church. All the chairs are in a line facing the same direction, and they are all pointing at the largest piece of furniture in the room, the TV. The sitting room is no longer a place designed for relationship, for conversation, for giving one another eye contact, for listening to one another. It's given over to the worship of those who appear on the TV. What about sport, which is closely related to TV? I often take the funeral of people who, I'm told, were mad about sport. And of course, they don't mean the person liked playing sport. Far from it. What they liked doing was sitting on the settee, eating and drinking, and watching the gods of sport perform the amazing feats that they do. And I know a man who, when the World Cup is on, spends two weeks isolated in a room from the rest of the world and from his wife because he worships the game of football. Human relationships come in a long way down the list. Now, I'm not suggesting that sport or TV or money or or any of these things are bad in themselves. They're not. In fact, most counterfeit gods are made out of things that are good. That's one of the reasons they come to be idolise so well. But what about success? What about beauty? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller says, we may not kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many women today are driven into depression or eating disorders by an obsessive concern over body image. And we may not burn incense to Artemis, but when jobs and career are given top priority, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve prestige and wealth. And I know that I, for one, spent far too much time away on business when my children were small. And I can never get that time back again. 
Where are you spending your time? What are your counterfeit gods? We've been learning on the Freedom in Christ course on a Wednesday evening that if we turn to anything other than God for our significance, our security or our acceptance, then we are creating a stronghold in our life. In other words, we're setting something else up in place of God on which we depend. And the plagues are also a demonstration against the false notion, very popular in today's secular society, that all religions are equally valid. Now, this may sound arrogant in today's culture, but as C.S. Lewis points out in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, if we believe Christianity to be true, then being a Christian does mean that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. A simple example, Islam teaches that Jesus never died on the cross, that there was no resurrection. Clearly, that's wrong. In the plagues, the God who called himself, I am who I am, is proven to be the one true God. That's the first thing. And secondly, the plagues reveal another particular and unique aspect of God. As God demonstrated his power over disease, over wildlife, over water, over the elements, over livestock, over the sun, over insects, even life itself, he confirms his role as creator of the universe. He mobilizes all of creation against Pharaoh. In the last two plagues, even light and life itself are extinguished. He is the great creator. And the plagues are also a demonstration of God's judgment on humanity. Pharaoh, by enslaving the Israelites, by refusing to let them go to worship the one true God, Yahweh, is literally anti-God. And so God sends creation into reverse against Pharaoh. Water no longer brings life. Light returns to darkness. Life to death. All around Pharaoh, the very fabric of his world falls apart, both physically and spiritually, as the Egyptian gods are exposed as a lie. And some would ask, how can a loving God do such appalling things to the people of Israel? I remember when I was a child and my parents would tell me to do something like, it's time for bed, up you go. And if I refused, I would get a warning. And then I might hear something like, if you're not upstairs in 10 seconds, you'll be sorry. (laughs) And then I had a clear choice. Either go upstairs or be sorry. Now, be sorry could take different forms and perhaps uh, leaving that open was part of the, the fear factor, but... None of the options were good. The question is, do you think warning a child three times before carrying out the punishment is reasonable? I think it is. In the plagues, God warns Pharaoh ten times in all. Each time, he makes the same request. Let my people go. And he tells him the consequences of not doing it. It's a clear choice. But each time Pharaoh refuses and God's judgment comes down on Pharaoh. 
The plagues are a warning about God's judgment. And something similar happens to us. We were created to live in relationship with God and in dependence on him. But from the earliest times, human beings have rejected God. As Paul the Apostle wrote in the first chapter of Romans, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped created things rather than the creator. And as a result, he points out, sin and sickness and emotional and mental breakdown and relational conflict and physical addictions and all these things have entered the world and we're heading for death. We're all heading for death. God told Pharaoh that judgment would come and it did. And so the plagues are also a sobering reminder to us that God has told all of humanity that judgment is coming. But the Christian faith is not bad news. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. And ultimately, the plagues are a sign that the Lord is not just the one true God who is creator and holy judge, but also that he is the gracious saviour. Because as disaster comes upon Egypt, God makes an exception for his people. In the plague of darkness, we're told in verse 23, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And the same thing happens in the fourth, fifth, seventh, ninth and tenth plagues. God's people escape God's judgment. Why is that? Were they better people than the Egyptians? Were they more righteous? I don't think so. We've learned in the last couple of weeks that the Israelites had largely forgotten who God was. But we get a clue in Romans chapter 9 when Paul quotes Exodus saying, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the Apostle Paul concludes from that that salvation does not depend on human effort or desire, but on God's will. And in order that none of us can claim that our salvation is based on our own works, our own effort, but on God's love and his mercy. And this ninth plague we've read about, this plague of darkness, it links us with Jesus. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, carrying the sins of the world, carrying all of my sin and all of your sin, darkness, this sign of God's judgment falling on Jesus, came across the land. The three days of darkness in Egypt are mirrored by the three hours of darkness as Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus experienced chaos, agony, darkness, death in order that we could be forgiven and set free just as God intends to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. The only place of safety in Egypt when the plagues fell was in Goshen, the place where the Israelites lived. And the only place of safety in the coming judgment will be in Christ, the true home of God's people. Because Jesus has already absorbed the plagues, if you like, of God's judgment when he hung on the cross. And his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. And so, in conclusion, 
The plagues were not some random set of disasters visited upon Israel, but upon Egypt by an angry God. God had seen his people suffering in slavery, and he cares, he loved them. He was determined to set them free. And as Pharaoh resisted God's warning of the coming disasters through the plagues, God showed himself to be the one true God, the mighty creator, the holy judge, and the gracious saviour. And this extraordinary set of events in Israel's history challenge us today to let go of our false gods, our counterfeit gods, to worship the one true God and to throw ourselves on his mercy, accept his forgiveness and come to Jesus, our saviour, full of grace and truth. Amen.